but please let yourself come back in and get settled down in a way that's comfortable and at ease. What do you do when everything in your being resists the act of beginning meditation and prayer? (laughs) When you know it's the best thing for yourself. That's a good one. Maybe I just start with that one. Um, I'll tell a story. I was on a retreat um, some years ago with this very wonderful teacher from India named Deepama, who was a great kind of sage and, and uh, yogi. And she was do- training us as teachers, so this was really special, you know. She came and she was going to do this special retreat for teachers and we were going to get into all these amazing states of samadhi and jhana and have all these insights and so forth. And I had actually just broken up with uh, my girlfriend, this woman I was going with, Um, who I loved a lot, and I was very unhappy and grieving. And uh, so I would sit and meditate and feel this tremendous grief and then start thinking, if only she had, and if only I had. You know those thoughts? And if only, and rerunning the whole thing. And about an hour later, I'd wake up and say, oh, my breath, right, go back to my breath. I couldn't. And um, I'd try again, okay, I'm studying with Deepama, I've got to do this right, sit, maybe I'll sit, and I won't move for four hours. I'm just going to sit, and the pain will get me, and I get really concentrated with the pain. And as soon as I moved, after three or four hours, I get very concentrated, and I'd start thinking, now I'm going to tell her, you know, and it's not, and it would all come back again. And I did it over, it was like hitting my head against the wall. And so, two days of that, and I went in to see her. She said, how is your meditation, your concentration? I said, it's not very good. She said, oh, teacher, you must try harder. I went back. I tried again another day. I was so disappointed. I couldn't do it. And it was evening. It was the time when they, were, they had the special of Shogun on television, those, those, those four nights or five nights, which I really liked that book. So late at night, I snuck down the back stairs of the meditation center and turned on the TV. I was supposed to be in retreat. And I watched Shogun, and I felt so much better. And then I went... (laughs) And I went back, and I meditated a little bit, and I went to see her the next day, and she said, So, teacher, how are you doing? And I looked at her, and I said, I can't do it right now. I just can't. And then I started to weep. And I said, This isn't a time where I can just sit still. I need a walk in the woods. I need to cry, I need to read sad poems, um, and um, it's not a time that it feels like even in my body that I can sit still. And I'll do it next year. <laughs> so that's partly my answer. There's, um, there's a season for everything, um, and I think what's most interesting is not that you should meditate or that you shouldn't meditate but to get interested in the moment that you don't meditate, you know, you can't, and say, what's going on? What's really going on? And they get curious, kind of investigation. What is so that's making it so hard? What am I feeling? Or what would be so difficult to experience if I sat still? And then what is that really asking for presence? Okay, your turn. Pick one. Or two, as you like. If you don't like that one, pick another. <laughs> you don't know if you'll be happy with it till you read it. No, hold on. My family. Oh, she's. Okay, it's all right. My family is worried that becoming able to let go of things means I'll no longer be attached to them. How do I explain that Buddhism is not a threat to our relationship? Okay. (laughs) It reminds me of a situation when I was in Paris staying with some friends of mine, and I was already a nun. And she was Russian, and he was French. 
And he was been a Buddhist. Her husband had been a Buddhist since the age of seventeen, and she was kind of, you know, not particularly Buddhist. She was just Russian. <laughs> Universal mind, you know, and Jewish. And she she said to me, you know, but I love with a beautiful Russian accent. She said, but I love my son. How can I let go of him? You know, and she'd been actually practicing Buddhism for some time with her husband, going to teachers in France and so on. And uh, it was really interesting to to see somebody who imagined that to let go of something you had to get rid of them, you know, or they had to disappear somehow for you from your life. Uh, there's such a kind of misunderstanding of what letting go is about. Um, you know, it's it's, and I think for people who are not familiar with the teaching, it it is you know um sometimes sometimes people practice and can actually not be very skillful in the way they communicate their practice. You know, don't bother me. I'm just kind of letting go of things. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know that that sort of attitude. So it's not very appealing really for them. Buddhism. <laughs> Not very attractive. They rather sort of talk about love and you know peace and you know something more friendly than just letting go and you know dying to things and uh, you know non-attachment. I'm practicing. Don't hug me. I'm practicing non-attachment. <laughs> you know, or don't talk to me right now. You know, I'm just practicing metta. <laughs> I mean, all these things are really, you know, but it, you, you laugh, but actually people go into this kind of situation, you know, and, and get involved with all sorts of troubles like that. So non-attachment doesn't mean you get rid of things. It means you actually put them right in front of you and you look at them with your body, your mind, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your everything. All your senses are really wide open and you look at them, you feel them, you sense them, you you know, you know what you're thinking about them, you know what you what they do to you, you know everything. And just through that awareness then you can also notice, you know, as soon as you see something more clearly, then you also it means that you also are in touch with any suffering that is attached, quote-unquote, to that situation. So Buddhism doesn't ask you to, uh, you know, get rid of things. It asks you to notice if there is some suffering, and most of the planet is actually not interested in suffering. People suffer like mad, but they're not interested in letting go, because, uh, you know, what what letting go means, it means if you suffer in relationship, are you interested in investigating that suffering or not? So you're not getting rid of anybody, you're just letting go, it means letting go of suffering. You know, letting, letting go of anything that is not happy in yourself. Letting go of anything that is in the way of, pure, of, of truly wholehearted love. You know. So she can say, whoever asks this question, is that you can say to your mom and dad that practicing Buddhism is actually learning to love them more profoundly, more deeply, more wholeheartedly, and without any string attached, without any agenda. So they can just be as nasty as they want, but you still <laughs> love them. That will get them to Buddhism straight away. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good question for me. I have two small children and find sitting logistically impossible in my life right now. Any suggestions on how to really use parenthood as a path to awakening and being present? Well, I don't have any children. 
So this particular one may not be appropriate for me. Pick another. Uh, Pass that along. I don't know if any of these are going to be any good. (laughs) 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 If the idea is not to kill or harm any other living being or any other living thing, dot, 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 what about weeding the garden? And what about the problem of cockroaches and other pests? (laughs) I think this is... This is always a tricky question. Um, kind of early on in practice, and actually even a little further on in practice. Uh, if we have a garden, and it has Put it a little closer to your mic. Let me hold it. Mm. I'll stand. This will do. If we have a garden that has something that we don't want in it, if we're growing food, for example, things to eat, and it's keeping us alive, and there are weeds that are taking over, how about now? Okay. So I'm not going to repeat what I said, but... If, we're, if we have a garden that has food in it that we're growing, vegetables and things, and there are weeds that are maybe choking the vegetables that are keeping us alive, well, then we need to ask ourselves really clearly, do we need to keep ourselves alive? And in order to do so, is it important to get rid of the weeds so that we can continue to keep ourselves alive, or what is our real intention? Is it to make the garden look beautiful? What really is behind what we're doing? I think that comes into killing the weeds or removing the weeds, okay? That's one aspect. The other part about the cockroaches, this is always difficult. There's a long story about IMS when they had an infestation of cockroaches um, and what to do. So, you know, it's, it's for each individual to look really carefully at what their own intention is. Um, for example, at IMS, if we had left the cockroaches just to continue breeding, well, we wouldn't have, you know, the retreat center would perhaps begin to crumble because people wouldn't want to come and sit with an infestation of cockroaches. But you don't take it lightly. You think really carefully and really deeply before you act, and then acting out of the most uh, caring, appropriate um, place that we can. Just thinking really carefully about our motives and our intentions, and learning all along the way, realizing that our understanding today may not be the same as our understanding in a year's time. So seeing that the deeper we practice, the more our understanding is going to evolve. Thank you. This on? Mm-hmm. Coming through? Yeah. Is there a final meeting with love, with one's heart? I think this is perhaps not an uncommon metaphor for how we might imagine what spiritual practice is about and in fact experience our practice as a 
a movement towards a, a deepening and an opening connection with what we could call our heart, which might express for us a, a sense of unconditional love, or heart in a sense of that which is most core, most deep, most true for us and for our life. In, in short, I would answer the question, yes. And it's really important that we actually acknowledge this or that we have some sense of that as a possibility. A final meeting sounds like we're not going to meet again, so I don't think quite that's what's meant. But the sense of actually, through a process of inner exploration, of really looking at our life, of exploring what is true for us, it is in fact the very nature of our being to be drawn towards its own core, which could equally be described as love or as truth or as emptiness. And the nature of what actually brings life into form is that, that movement towards consciously discovering itself. with one's heart, a final <coughs> meeting with love, with one's heart. What does that evoke for you when you hear that phrase? This isn't a question for a kind of a, a cut and dried answer. It's really, it seems more like an invitation to any of us that are hearing it to contemplate that possibility. I don't think there's a necessarily a condition in which we arrive that we say, this is it. I've got here and then no more do I need to continue to seek to make that meeting real and live and genuine for ourselves. But that in fact it's an ongoing and dynamic process where when we actually sense that this and for this person perhaps this is what they maybe sense is a way of expressing what is most important to them. I don't know because I only have the piece of paper. But coming into contact with ourselves with a sense of what is most important, what most deeply calls our being into existence, into engagement with the world, with ourselves, with spiritual practice. That this questioning, is there a possibility? Is there more to be discovered? Are there greater depths of compassion, of openness, of heartfulness. It's an important question to actually hold. In, in some ways, the question, the very fact that the question can be proposed or even conceived, speaks to me of a sense of, of the answer already there in that. That we yearn for that connection with love for the discovery of what our true heart is, the place of, of resting in the nature of our being, that we yearn for that, is only because that is there within us. And the recognition of the question and the yearning that goes with it, or that it springs from, in fact, in turning our attention to that, we actually are already engaged in the process of meeting our heart. Not a final meeting whereby we either have finished and never do it again, or a final meeting that suggests that now we go on to something else. But a, a meeting that is actually <coughs> very much at the heart of what spiritual practice is about, and what I'm sure is something of, of real interest to you here and coming. And so, may you meet your heart, both as it is right now and in all the, the depths and dimensions that it can reveal to you. It's not just a response to the questioner, it's equally to anyone else who resonates with that question.
The next two questions <clears throat> are in a certain way related to the first one that I read about how do you practice when you can't practice. Um, they're all questions about how does one practice in difficult situations. When one can't practice, one begins by paying attention to that and honoring that as the place of awareness and compassion. So there was the one, I have two small children and find sitting logistically impossible right now. Any suggestions how to really use parenthood as a path to awakening and being present? In the most um, strict and dedicated monastic practice that you could find in the mountains of Tibet or the forest of Thailand, you would be asked to get up early and stay up late and practice patience and compassion and ardency and care and attention and uh, mindfulness and love over and over again um, in very difficult circumstances. I know of no more demanding or difficult circumstances than having a couple of young children. And um, all of the great trainings that you might get if your guru says or your meditation master you should get up at three in the morning and start sitting early and then you know do your prayers and then go on and do these practices you can do it some days and then some days you say well I don't feel like it so much but if you're there and your child is sick and cries in the middle of the night you get up and you sit with that child and it is the act of presence and surrender and compassion. When you're a new parent, mother or father, it's a little bit like you're underwater or maybe like you're on a Tibetan three-year, three-month retreat, which they do in caves. You just go into that as your practice and you surrender because there's no choice, right? They have the power in the relationship <laughs> and you are the servant. Um, and you do it if you do it as practice, not thinking my practice is something else, I should be sitting, I should be at Spirit Rock, I should be in Tibet, but this is my place of presence and compassion and patience and tenderness and care, um, there's no finer practice. It's quite wonderful. Um, and there's nothing that will teach you any more deeply than that. So that is the place of practice, and I respect it. My husband really hurt me by being emotionally closed during the pregnancy and the birth of our children. And now, a year and a half, two years later, he's being totally present and wonderful again. It's hard for me to open and trust and be with the present. How can I let go of the hurt and trust him again? Wonderful question. And again, related. Um, one of the fundamental practices of the heart is the practice of forgiveness and letting go. And in any love relationship, you will hurt people and you will be hurt. Anybody not have that in their close love relationships? <laughs> nah, not a hand goes up. Um, when we make ourselves vulnerable in love, um, we also betray one another in small and large ways. We hurt one another or we disappoint one another. And in a most fundamental way, the training of the heart is to learn to let go and trust again. And so you have to look inside and bear the suffering, because it wasn't fair, right? It wasn't fair and it wasn't right, and what they did wasn't fair, and often what you did wasn't fair some other time. And it's, so you're not going to get it right in that way. And in some way, you know, in this kind of situation, not where you're being harmed by someone, but where someone really comes back and says, I am now here. Um, if you stay closed, who suffers? The, the being closed is actually your own heart, it's your own suffering. And yes, it's hard to trust again, and it takes a certain breathing and forgiveness, but ask yourself what really matters to you, um, and start over. The world needs it. The, Palestinians and the Israelis and the Serbs and the Bosnians and the Croats and, and uh, everybody else on this earth needs that lesson. The fact is that we can let go in the heart, that we can love again, and it's one of the great gifts of the Spirit to really learn that and enact it in our life, because otherwise we're, we're caught forever in this wheel, and you can be free, you can let go.
Yeah. <laughs> So, um, is it important to one's practice to know what's going on in the world, the big, wide world? <laughs> yes, it is very important. But there's an easy way to do it. You've got it right here with you. The big, wide world is right here in you. The Palestinian, the Chinese, the the Israelis, the Croats, the Americans. (laughs) Uh, The big wide world is, you know, the the, the conflicts and the problems that we, um, you know, the the suffering and the, 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 the lack and the needs and the pain and the uh, agonizing situation that we hear through the media, read in the newspaper, uh, hear from many different, uh, through many different means. We we, we are constantly bombarded with uh, news of some kind of suffering or another going on throughout the world. For our little brain, it's a lot to take in, actually. And so, yes, it is important, but you have more important than, than, than knowing what's out there externally. It's the place where there is a sense of resolution for yourself and for other people, which have, will have the power effect on other people, not just you, is to see that the big white world out there begins here within yourself. How can you have um, you know, understanding, forgiveness of um, the anger of that goes on in the world, the, the selfishness and the greed that goes on in the world, if you don't have an, a profound insight into the, uh, those um, manifestations within yourself. And so, um, yes, the big wide world can bring you back to yourself. But sometimes being caught up in uh, the sorting out and kind of receiving uh, 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 numerable, innumerable news, you know, of the big wide world can bring a huge amount of confusion in oneself, and one has to be aware of that. The restlessness, the agitation, the confusion, the sense of helplessness, the sense of what can I do and not be able to do anything, you know, how can I help the world and I can't do anything. And you you you'll be surprised that people can get onto amazing causes to save the world, but they still can't speak to their neighbor. They can't even say hello to your mother to their mother in the morning. <laughs> Where is a big white world? You know, this is a good question, isn't it? Where does it begin? You know, you might want to go all the way to Yugoslavia or to Palestine. You know, or to some kind of part of the world to, to, you know, to, uh, to uh, alleviate the suffering and yet not even be resolved in your own relationship, not even have a, a, a sense of resolution and contentment and peace within your own heart. You know? So um, when I said, yes, it's very good to know the big white world, you know, it was half a joke, really. Because on one level, yes, it is. But my experience of knowing the big white world has uh, you know, the effect of that. As I'm a meditator, I notice the effect it has on me. Is that it's like, have, it's like suddenly seeing oneself you know, the size of an ant trying to carry mount, a mountain. You know? So it's very stressful at some level. It's very burdensome and heavy especially if you can't do anything about it. You know, so what do you want to, you know, how, I mean, maybe I'm kind of extrapolating a little <coughs> bit, you know. So, um, you know, adding on to the question itself, but um, I know, I mean, I can see where the question is leading to, and I know, I can sense where this question is coming from, maybe, you know. 
Uh, do I need to know, get to know what's going on in the world? Mm. What's, you know, the, the rivers being polluted, the mountains falling apart, the glaciers sliding down the oceans, the whales being killed, the, 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 uh, you know, the animals disappearing, the, oh my God, you know, how do you do? What do you do? Oh. So there's a kind of, you know, the, the, I think it's very important to know how we receive all these informations about the big white world because without realizing without being conscious of the effect it has on us we might actually disempower ourselves much more so than if we did not know so much you know a clear mind a peaceful heart content and hap happy spirit you know might be a lot more effective than worrying about being helpless okay. yes it is good but it's also, you know, has its price. this person is being funny. How is meditation different from daydreaming? Huh. Quite different. <laughs> if this is what you're doing, this is not meditating. <laughs> daydreaming is facing out and meditating is being present with what is. So if you're aware that the mind has spaced out and you come back to the body, the breathing, hearing, one of the six senses, then you're meditating. But if you sit for 45 minutes spacing out or fantasizing, then you're not actually meditating. You're getting lost which is where we always are. We come to meditation so that we can learn to be present, learn to strengthen the mind so that it doesn't space out or daydream. We've been doing that for a very long time. We're trying to slowly turn in the opposite direction. Is that clear? I wanted to add something to the uh, response, which I very much appreciated of Ajahn Sundara's, but perhaps another piece to that question, because I uh, felt very uh, relevant for some things I've been involved with recently, and some quite some insight into some of the aspects of it. Uh, about six weeks ago, was it six weeks? Um, beginning of April. So, eight weeks ago. My maths is right, six, eight weeks ago. I was part of a group, in fact, leading a, a walk in Israel, a group of meditators who chose to walk in silence from one side of that country to the other. And it just so happened that the week that was chosen, planned quite some time in advance, coincided with the most intense period of the, uh, the uh, bombings and the Israeli army activity in the occupied territories and an immense degree of suffering going on. And uh, many things to talk about that could be raised with that. But in terms of knowing what's going on in the world, there was actually someone from America who came especially over for it, as I came from England and others. But most of the participants were, in fact, Israelis, primarily Jewish. A few Arabs joined us. We walked slowly in silence across the country as an expression of a wish for peace. And what I noticed when I arrived in the country was, is that people were traumatized by the exposure to the news in the way that Ajahn was referring to, that the level of impact of the, the trauma of what was going on was extreme, to the point where people couldn't really deal with it. And in fact, I noticed 
with I have some family there that they when they turned the television off for two hours they started to feel better quite that simply you don't need to see the same news again and again and again and again in the same way as the mind tends to cycle things through when we're unconscious so too the news seem to do that and a lot of our news is just a representation of what goes on in an unconscious mind and that is really worth cutting through and reducing but there's something about exposing one's heart to the suffering that's out there finding a degree of exposure that actually allows one to open rather than be overexposed and therefore close in a defensive response and what I wanted to add this is really a preamble to the piece I wanted to say most to that question was in being in touch with the world or the importance of knowing the world it's not just that but responding to it whether the inner world responding bringing wisdom and compassion through practice but equally the practice of responding with wisdom and compassion to the outer world which is not separate that there is always something that you can do that is a genuine response and even if it's only touching the place of the heart that says oh that's tough well that's painful for those people or whatever or those beings, the creatures, the environment, the planet that is us, yes, everything. To actually touch that and then find a way for the response to that suffering to actually take form. That that actually cuts through the sense of overwhelm and helplessness that disempowers us in the face of exposure to either too much going on in the world or equally too much going on in our own heart. And it was really interesting that for these people who did this walk, and we had over 250, 300 people walk, though, up to 100 any given day, in silence, in a line, through that country, so full of conflict, that people said and participants asked, will this make a difference? And it was remarkable how much of a difference it made, not just to the people walking, but to anyone who came in contact with us, or many people that there is something about responding to the world that actually transforms the effect of being in contact with it to no longer being overwhelming or traumatizing but actually to become aligned with with the way things are which includes not just the suffering in the world and the craziness and of course the suffering and craziness in our minds at times but actually that there is a response to it when we actually open to it there is a response that is the process of transformation and in that way it's really profound spiritual practice to be in touch really in touch with the world and to never think that there's nothing you can do because there's always, even if it's just the thought that wishes, may those beings be safe or free from suffering. Just that actually makes a difference. Question. How do I be compassionate to my 82-year-old alcoholic mother who is in denial about her alcoholism but keeps injuring herself. So there are these different questions about suffering. The suffering in the wide world, so to speak, and the suffering that's very close to home. And I certainly wouldn't wouldn't want to deny the power of someone that we are so close to as our own mother. I remember talking with Stephen Levine, good friend, who has sat with so many different people in his hospice work as they have died, and children and adults and so forth. And I was talking to Stephen um, a couple or a few days after his mother died. And I said, Stephen, you've sat with so many people during their, their death. Um, how was it to sit with your mother? And he said, oh, it was really different because it was my mother. It was so different. So first is just to respect the depth of the question and the 
the suffering in it. There is, um, in addition to the compassion practice that we might do with our breath, breathing in and out and wishing to hold the sorrow of another in compassion, there is, together with it, linked um, the practice of equanimity, um, which is finding that spacious heart or the place of balance or peace in the midst of the sorrow of this world, in particular in the face of the suffering that we cannot change. And the traditional recitation for that practice coming from the time of the Buddha says that beings are the recipients of their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them which is a very powerful statement and meant to be a balance for the practice of loving compassion. In loving compassion, one wishes well, may you be well, may you be safe from harm and danger, may you be held in compassion. And yet at some point, there's a recognition that your actions and deeds are what cause your happiness and suffering. And It is not in my power to control your life, whether it is my children or my parents or my lovers or the people around. Try controlling them. See what happens. It's not a terribly effective strategy. So what we can do is love another being deeply and care. How can I be compassionate? Um, The same way you'd be compassionate to anyone who was suffering a great deal and causing suffering who's in denial about her alcoholism and injuring herself. What's important for this person is also to look to the expectations of what they wish their mother would be. I wish she'd get over her alcoholism. I wish she would not be in denial. I wish my mommy would be here for me, perhaps, in some way. Because no matter how old you are, you might be 65 yourself, she's still your mommy, right? It's just the truth. Um, So to look at those needs that we carry, which are very deep and genuine, and then bow to them and say, yes, this is what I, what I feel, and the grief, I may not get this in this way from my mother, and bow to her and say, I wish you all the compassion in the world, and your happiness and suffering come from your actions, and not just my wishes for you. It's a tough practice. Um, but it's true. And I think only with that can one really be compassionate. Otherwise, what gets in is our needs and our, our ideas and our clinging and grasping. Not easy. We're asked, whether individually in our families or globally, Um, to bear a great deal of sorrow in this world, as well as a great deal of beauty. There's this almost unspeakable beauty of this earth and an unbearable suffering if we really open ourselves to it. And it's really only with this practice, in whatever way you find to do, of returning to your true nature, to the great heart of compassion and wisdom that is there in you, your birthright, that you can stand the suffering and the beauty and stay present for it. But you can do that. That is your birthright. It is your true nature. And that's really why we practice. The question you've been this is a question you've been waiting for a long long time <laughs> what do nuns do about sex <laughs> you found that in there huh? <laughs> 
<laughs> this is a question that you always wanted to ask and never then. <laughs> I'll talk to Jack afterwards. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Not encouraged to repress. <laughs> Any more questions? <laughs> Go ahead, uh, John. There are there are more in there. Have you seen for me? Could you talk about your motivation to become a monk or nun? How does one feel that they are contributing to or up? affecting the world and how does one decide to cease being a, a monk or nun? Well, there's quite a few questions in there. So motivation to become a monk or a nun? Well, if I speak from my own experience, it was uh, simply, um, I think, the, 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 just the suffering of, of delusion that really brought me against the wall, so to speak the suffering of noticing my conditioning and my response to my conditioning and the stupidity of my own selfishness and the you know the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the, the kind of lack of skills in, in living There's a, so the, there, is an, uh, there was an awareness at some point which made me you know brought consciousness into my lack of skills in living really happily and I wanted to be really happy and just like you forever and ever more and more till I die <laughs> so that's really what motivated me to become a nun I just wanted to be really happy always and develop the skill of happiness and become really confident in being a happy person and that was really the motivation just being really happy of course, once you join the monastery, then something happens. <laughs> you realize that yes, the motivation is a very good one, but it, uh, you know, there is many levels of happiness. So um, you begin to realize that maybe the happiness that you were looking for, once you get it, then it's not so interesting. So <laughs> you have to realize there is there must be some something else that I have to reach to be happy. So basically, that was really, the, 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 for me, what my, my primary motivation was to become a fulfilled, happy human being. And I have had plenty of sex. That's me, never been a problem. I've been married 10 years with a very good French husband. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been, it's never been a problem. <laughs> but one thing I was lacking, <laughs> one thing I was lacking is just being really wise. You know, I was really stupid. A lot of <laughs> I was, I, I, I thought I was intelligent, but life kept telling me how unwise I was, you know. So that was a basic reason, you know, to be happy, to become wise, to live in, to, and to learn how to, to live. And of course, um, you know, as I began to investigate a little bit more the present moment, I be, uh, you know, you, you come into contact very quickly with the human predicament, which is a very painful one, as long as there's delusion in the mind. Now, I've lived with a painful predicament for 30 years before I actually woke up. So it's not that it wasn't there before, but it's a point which is a really a w amazing moment when you suddenly realize that there is a choice. You don't have to be suffering you can actually wake up and you can actually choose and you can be responsible for your life. You don't have to be the little baby that needs to be carried by mother and father or life for that matter. You turn life into being mom and dad. You know, you can actually be responsible for your act, for your thoughts, for your feelings, for your body, for what you do, for your sex, for everything. You can actually become mature and 
and, and conscious. And that, for me, was so much more alive than being stupid and deluded and selfish and demanding and immature, you know. But what both the, the you know, I wouldn't have been, I could not be a Christian nun, no, never. Not, I have nothing against Christianity. I've got many friends who are deeply committed Christian monks and nuns. But for me, what was appealing to becoming a nun in the Buddhist tradition was that I could actually think freely. I could be really as obnoxious and stupid and and selfish, you know. But there was a place of being, you know, that brought me into that space of awareness where all that quote unquote messy stuff, all the manure of our mind, could be transformed into a beautiful place. Like Switzerland, you know that? (laughs) (laughs) Switzerland is covered over with manure once a year. The whole of Switzerland, except the city, I think, just gets covered over with manure. And look what happened to this beautiful country. (laughs) Well, it was wonderful to discover all the manure that I had inside could actually be turned into a beautiful, (laughs) you know, an artwork, a beauty thing, a beautiful thing. That was my main motivation, to becoming a nun, make my life beautiful and happy. Now the second, these are all very kind of loaded questions. How does one feel that they are contributing? What do you mean nuns are not contributing to the world? What's that? This is really... (laughs) Who who wrote this? I want to meet them at the outside of the door. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any doubt that monks and nuns are not contributing to the world? Do we want more deluded people in the world? I mean, at least monks and nuns are making an effort (laughs) to let go of delusion. (laughs) And we're not even making babies, you know, which is... Because then you have to look after more than needed people, you know. <laughs> so, you know, monks and nuns are helping the world. I always saw myself in England, maybe not here, but in England for me when people would say, what do you use for society? I said, well, the monastery is in the heart of society. It's not outside. It's not, it's not some, something, it's such a holiday resort, you know, out there that you go on holiday and you kind of, t- you know, tuck yourself away from all the problems and so on. If you... If you know what the restraint of a monastic uh, structure, environment, discipline does to you, you will know that um, the experience of life is actually extremely intensified as a monk and nun. The intimacy I have with my, my friends, monks and nuns, is, you know, I thought I was extremely intimate with my, in my couple, in my marriage. But even though we don't have any sex, we don't sleep in the same bed, we don't sleep in the same roof, right? But we have an intimacy at the level of the heart, of honesty, of truthfulness, of being really a clear mirror for each other, which you, you, find, you find very, very rarely. You know, you can't really lie for very long in a community of monks and nuns. And that's very helpful to have that sort of reminder, because our mind is the greatest liar and the greatest cheat that ever existed. Am I the only one? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And you know, there's a very beautiful story about truth heals. The truth, if you want to heal the world, be truthful. And the monk and the nun are completely committed to be truthful. You know, and that takes a lot of. Um, you know, commitment to actually not move away. The, you know, the only place that is truly truthful is the present moment, and that takes a commitment to actually make turn one's life, like Annie was saying, turn one's life to toward the present moment all the time, where really the real stuff happens. But we keep missing it. You know, we want to be real. We want to be alive. We want to be true. We want to be really on top of the world. With but we keep missing it. We're always behind the doors when the Biscuits, or the cakes are being passed around, as my teacher used to say. <laughs> you know, when the goodies are being passed around, you're behind the door. So, as a, as a monk and a nun, you're very much contributing uh, to the world's peace, 
you're contributing to the um, to the sanity of the world. You know, even though not many people come to the monastery, no, how many people want to be a monk and nun? I mean, it's such a bizarre lifestyle. Who wants to eat one meal a day? Who wants to wear a dress like this? I mean, I used, I'm French, you know, I used to dress like this. <laughs> I developed the art of beautiful dress, you know, dressing really smartly and beautifully and, you know, looking special. Of course, I still look special. <laughs> 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 Unusual, you know. But it's, you know, it's, it's uh, something very, um, you know, it's, it's different from what the way I used to be before. And so um, you contribute, you know, for me in many, many ways. I would not be a nun if I didn't think I was doing something to the world, you know. I can actually myself realize what delusion <coughs> is truthfully. I can realize what selfishness, and it doesn't, it seems like an earthworm practice, like Adenta used to say, you have to be an earthworm to be a monk and nun. Not a big guy out there, you have to, to be a truly, a true monk and nun, you have to turn yourself into an earthworm. Now, I know Americans won't take something like that. Maybe a golden elephant, that would be really great. A white <laughs> elephant. But a little earthworm is not very kind of appealing for an American mind, who likes big things. <laughs> Everything is big for me in America, you know. You ask for, you know, would you like a small size for coat or medium size? I say medium. So that a little <laughs> I come back with this, you know. So, um, so a, a monk and a nun benefit the world by just being themselves, by going by actually embodying the suffering of the world by learning the skill of releasing the suffering, you know. So the skill is learned as a kind of field work project. You actually learn on yourself. And you transform yourself. It's the most beautiful process. You actually transform yourself. You know, but many people have some strange idea about monks and nuns sitting on a cushion nirvanic space from the day one till they die, in blissful day, mindful. No. That's not like that at all. So, um, so we contribute in many ways. Uh, we affect the world in many ways. Yeah. Uh, for me, just to know there was somebody I called Thomas Milton in the world, a Trappist monk from Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, where well, she was, in the, I was in April there, uh, attending a conference on suffering <laughs> and transformation. Just to know there was somebody like that in the world, myself, was a great appeasement in my heart when I turned myself to that sort of, you know, to, you know, to not religion, but to spirituality or whatever, you know, waking up and that sort of thing. So, and people have said that, just knowing that there is a monastery, maybe a place where people are trying to be a little bit more sane than the world of madness we live in, you know. I think for me it will be reassuring. So it's a kind of reassuring thing to know at least there is some people that do that. You know. But you do that too. It's not just a you know, a separation between monastery and you're just human being. You're working towards, you know, appeasing a peace in the world, work, working towards uh, bringing sanity, bringing clarity, bringing uh, selflessness, you know. Learning about one's own selfishness and letting go of it, you, you, you transform your heart into a selfless heart. And that's a very beautiful thing to do. You know? I'm not advocating you all become monks and nuns, but, you know, but it is a good, um, has a good impact on the world, I'm sure. How does one decide to cease being a monk or a nun? Well, you don't decide, usually. It happens. <laughs> it's kind of thing that just you know, many people have disrobed in my, in my community. At some point, there were so many people who disrobed. They were all my friends, you know. And I, ironically, I said, what did I do wrong not to leave, you know? What went wrong in my life as a nun not to leave the monastery, you know? Of course, I was being kind of teasing a little bit, you know. But people uh, decide to live when they find that the, the lifestyle doesn't suit them anymore. You know, many monks have left because they were 
they, they desire to experience more intimacy, you know, maybe sexual intimacy, and celibacy is not that good for that, you know. <laughs> it's not the ideal model. <laughs> and nuns felt maybe the hierarchical system was too much or, you know, it was too restrained. Uh, they needed to explore more. You know, we had a, a nun, she was a professional musician. You know, she f struggled for about 10 years with uh, the fact that she could not play music in our tradition. And finally, she, finally she came to a point of clarity and decided to leave. And uh, some of you have heard her in concert here called Abbasara. Sister Ab ex sister Abbasara, beautiful musician, beautiful singer, and she writes songs and so on. But uh, you know, she took up took up this life for some time, and then she began to see that there was a struggle. You know, she was not really doing what her heart wanted to do. So you have to in this life, uh, you know, just like like all of you here, you are a monastic because. If you're really going to be a, tr a true monastic, you have to have a very happy heart in this life. You know, not a happy mind. I mean, the mind is always cornered by mindfulness, as you know. And kind of, you, know, you zoom in mindfulness on these little stories and little tricks it plays on you. But a happy heart is a very different thing. It doesn't mind. It doesn't mind suffering actually. A heart can be quite happy in the midst of suffering. A heart can be quite uh, joyful in the midst of conflict, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of challenges and tests, you know. So if you don't feel that sense that your heart is responding to your life in a joyful, happy way, then it can be a great struggle for monks and nuns, you know, it's very difficult. So we've come to about the end of the evening, the the last question with a one-sentence answer, is it possible to awaken as a householder as well as a nun or a monk? And Ajahn Sundra answered that in her own way at the end. Um, or as Zen Master Dogen said, um, if you can't find the truth where you are, where else do you expect to find it? <laughs> what I would like to do is invite us to do a very simple one-minute chant together. Um, and I thank Yanai and Annie and Ajahn Sundara, and thank you all for your kind attention and patience. We'll do very simple chant and then go out into the summer evening. In India, when you meet a person, you put your hands together, bow a little bit, and say Namaste, um, which means I honor the divine within you. Or I see who you really are behind all that. And the root of the word namaste is in Sanskrit the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects to, to oneself, to one's beauty, to the suffering that we've been given, to the capacity of, for freedom of heart and compassion. And so we'll chant the word namo, just that word, nine times. And as you do inwardly, you can see what it is in your life or in the world that asks for your bow, your compassionate attention. And then uh, we'll go out into the evening. Na mo Na
May the week ahead be filled with your own respectful attention and compassionate heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.